0: This is the Education Exchange. I'm Paul Peterson, senior editor at Education Next. I have with me today Michelle Rhee, who was the chancellor of the Washington DC school system between 2007 and 2010, a period of amazing innovation. And so it's very nice for us at Harvard that she is serving here as an academic visitor to the Harvard program on education policy and governance in the Harvard Kennedy School. Michelle, you introduced into the District of Columbia a pay-for-performance program that was outstanding in design and which has been shown to be effective by careful scholarship research. And over the years, the performance of district schools in the District of Columbia has shown some of the steepest achievement growth in the country on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So that's quite an accomplishment. So um, first of all, could you explain to our listeners the main features of this plan that you put into place that I think is still in place today?
1: Sure. Um, so one thing that the listeners should should know as context is that when uh, we took over the District of Columbia Public Schools in 2007, um, we were largely known as the lowest performing and most dysfunctional school district in the country. Um, we had uh, a situation where Um, only 8% of the eighth graders in the city's schools were performing on grade level in mathematics, 8%. And uh, that means that 92% of our young people were not meeting uh, the the skill levels that they needed to. Uh, And yet at that same time, if you were to look at the performance evaluations of the adults in the system, you would have found that 98% of them were being rated as doing excellent work. (laughs) So how could you possibly have a functional institution or organization where all of the employees think, wow, I'm doing great work, and yet the results were 92% failure, essentially. Um, So there was a complete and utter disconnect between how our students were doing academically and how our teachers were being rated. So Um, how
0: did you address that problem?
1: So we created a new teacher evaluation system called IMPACT, um, which essentially uh, was, was completely turning teacher evaluation systems on its head. Um, if you looked at evaluation systems back then, and, and to a certain extent still to, to this day, you will find a lot where you know, the evaluation is one page long, and essentially a teacher is told you are either satisfactory or unsatisfactory, um, and it's based on um, one person, your principal's, view on you. Uh, We instituted an evaluation system where 50% of the teacher's evaluation was based on the academic growth of their students in their classroom. Um, And the other 50% was based on a number of factors, including um, professionalism, uh, contributions to school community, um, and observations of classroom practice.
0: So how did you observe... Classroom practice—that's that can be a very time-consuming task.
1: Yeah, uh, it absolutely is incredibly resource-intensive, especially to do it correctly. Um, prior to Impact, I think most teachers would tell you that their principal would come in for about ten minutes, and then they'd get their evaluation form, which said satisfactory, and that was about it um, in terms of their their uh, classroom observations. What we put in place in DC. Was a system where the teachers were observed five times during the course of the school year. Some announced observations and some unannounced. Um, and that's because we you know, we knew that some teachers had the ability to sort of put on a dog and pony show when they knew that they were going to be observed, but we wanted to see what was happening in the classroom every day, um, even when they weren't expecting a visitor. Um, and uh, a couple of the evaluations were done by um, principals or administrators in the building, but we also instituted a program called the Master Educator Program. And this was when we brought in people from outside of the school, who were um, experts in the grade level and subject area that the teachers taught um, to do the observations. And we put that in place because so many of the teachers that we talked to said, you know, look, I'm a, I am ai teach three-year-old autistic kids. I'm in a special education classroom. My principal taught um, high school Jim, uh, right, P.E., and so he doesn't know anything about special education, he doesn't know anything about early childhood, he really can't assess my practice um, in a meaningful way, um, and we thought that that was a very valid concern that teachers had, and so that's why we implemented the Master Educator Program, um, and it is still going on today, and I think is one of the most successful innovations that we put into place. So
0: that contributed almost half of the evaluations, and half student growth, half observation and professional participation. Uh, So let's say you're identified as a great teacher under this system, then so what?
1: Yeah, Um, so we wanted to not just differentiate amongst our teaching force, which hadn't been done before, but we wanted to make sure that our most highly effective teachers were recognized and rewarded and felt valued for the work that they were doing every day. So we would put in place a number of, of different things. Probably the most well-known is a pay-for-performance plan. Um, and this basically uh, replaced the traditional step-and-ladder um pay scale where uh, if a teacher just taught an additional year and, or had a, uh, an advanced degree, you would, your pay would increase every year. We actually um, replaced that with a system where if a teacher was highly effective and um, teaching in a high-need school or low-performing school and in a high-need subject area, those teachers essentially could be paid double in the new system what they had been in the old system.
0: Wow, that's a pretty amazing uh, difference in the way in which teachers are being paid, but who can afford all of that? That sounds like that's gonna be a pricey policy to put into place.
1: Um, you're right that uh, we went through a transition period where we were phasing out the old system and phasing in the new system, um, and it required us to do a significant amount of external uh, fundraising. So we went to philanthropic sources, raised about $68 million, and uh, what we said was we need a five year period um, through which we're going to transition. Um, but in the longer run, we, this, is, this model will be self-funding. Um, and we knew that we were going to be able to accomplish that because uh, we were looking at the um, payroll data. And we knew that every year the district was spending a lot of money increasing pay for people based on um, factors like seniority or, or advanced degrees when, in fact, those things didn't have any impact on student achievement. Um, we were also paying for different kinds of certification uh, that teachers had um, uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, probably the most important thing was that every teacher every year would get a raise. Uh, we put in place um, a new system where teachers who were rated as minimally effective or lower, their pay was frozen, right? So they were not gonna get the yearly increase. We did not put pay towards some of these other factors that we didn't believe were correlated to student achievement, instead, um, took all of those dollars, those sort of um, differential dollars, and put them into paying our most highly effective teachers more money. Um, so now that, that program is still in place. Um, and, and how do
0: the teachers like it? Is, it? is it as controversial today as it was when it was first established?
1: Uh, it, it is absolutely um, a different ballgame. Uh, so when we first introduced this system, it was... It met with a tremendous amount of skepticism. You know, people said, well, gosh, you know, people were saying to them, uh, the only reason why they're putting this in place is so that they can get rid of, you know, more expensive veteran teachers and replace them with um, less expensive new teachers, et cetera. And so there was a lot of skepticism about what all this meant. Um, I, I recently ran into somebody who's done some research um, and a lot of um, surveys of, of DC public school teachers. And what she said is that if you were to try to take away impact today, she said you would have a revolt on your hands. People really like the system. They think that they get much better um, professional feedback um, and they feel like they are being recognized for the work that they're doing. Um, So even though it was a tough road the first couple of years to get people acclimated, Uh, to the system now that it's been in place for a number of years, um, you know, really people people understand the value of it and wouldn't want to revert back to anything else. Well,
0: that's really the testimony to your original thinking on this, because the hardest thing there is in reform is to get that reform in place and to keep it in place. But now I think one of the things that you did to get it into place was to say you don't have to go into this new plan. If you don't, if you want to stick to the old plan, you can stick to the old plan. So how did that element work out? Yeah.
1: So that that's right. We um, we you know we knew that it was a pretty significant change. Um, and that some, to a certain extent, it might be unfair. So teachers came into the system believing that they were gonna operate in a certain model and to just sort of upend that um, would be uh, problematic. So what we decided with the union was to say, every new teacher into the system will go on to the new plan. And anybody who's been here um, can choose to go on the new plan or choose to stay on the old plan. And it was interesting because lots of teachers uh, who were suspicious of our motives said, well, I'm going to stick with the old plan and, and keep my you know, tenure and seniority and my um, uh, protections. And after a couple of years, they would look around and they'd say, well, gosh, that teacher down the hallway, she's been here as long as I have, and she's still here. They didn't fire her. And by the way, she's got a new car, and she went on vacation with her husband, and here I am. I, I didn't take advantage of any of that. And so now if you look at the data, um, you know, o- almost everybody is on the new plan, um, and that original skepticism has really subsided.
0: Well, Michelle, I can't uh, uh, let you go without asking you a little bit about your current work in, uh, I think it's in Charleston, South Carolina, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your the new role that you're playing in education reform?
1: Sure. Um, so I've, I've kind of stepped away from doing the day-to-day uh, operating of a, of a district or a, an organization, um, but the, the, the two communities where I have remained involved are Charleston and Tulsa because there are uh, initiatives in both of those cities. Um, in Tulsa, it's called the Met Cares Foundation, and um, Charleston it's called Charleston Rise, um, where we have significant community Based efforts to push aggressive education reforms. Um, The Charleston Rise program is a fellowship for parents, public school parents uh, and grandparents. Um, And the fellows go through a six month training where they learn about education, they look at a lot of data, uh, achievement data from their schools, et cetera. Um, And then after that six month period is over, then they kind of take on campaigns within their cities. Um, And I really think that um, it is it is what education reform has been missing to date. Um, When you have, whether it's me, a superintendent, or a a forward-thinking mayor, or governor, or school board even, who is coming in and trying to implement reforms that the community, A, doesn't understand, or B, doesn't really want, then it's really hard to get those things um, passed, to implement them, or to sustain them once that person is gone. We really have seen through these two programs, MetCares and and Charleston Rise, that when the community is the one that is driving the reforms, the community is demanding the turnaround of low-performing schools or um, a a much more rigorous teacher evaluation program, then the likelihood that those reforms um, can be not only passed but sustained in the long term will be much, much greater because the people who are impacted every day by them are the ones who are sort of saying, this is what we need for kids.
0: So what are they focusing on? What are are the reform point, I mean, what are the focal points of of their efforts?
1: So in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, there is a a part of the city, North Tulsa, which is largely African-American population, um, where we ran the data and found that there are um, between four and 5,000 African-American kids who are currently um, trapped in failing schools. And there weren't a lot of options for those families other than the neighborhood schools, some charter schools here and there. Um, But we were able to show the community that uh, there was one feeder pattern in particular in North Tulsa where every single school in that feeder pattern was rated as an F school on the A to F report card. So essentially we said if you live in this part of, of North Tulsa, your kid's life chances are not good. Um, So that was sort of depressing to the community. At the same time, we said, but look, seven schools. So if we were to be able to turn around this feeder pattern and have seven high-performing schools, you could essentially create enough high-performing seats for all of those kids who are trapped in failing schools and essentially close the achievement gap in the city. right?" So the community became really motivated by this idea. They went out, they visited a number of different um, Programs and schools, charter school providers, traditional public schools found a uh, provider that they felt was running a great school in Memphis, Tennessee, and invited them to come in and form a partnership school between uh, the Metcares Foundation and the Tulsa Public Schools District. Um, It's a very unique partnership opportunity in that the school counts as a Tulsa Public School, but it's given all of the authority and autonomy of a charter school. So it sort of has the best of both worlds. Uh, And that the first school just opened um, a few weeks ago is doing great. Uh, And the community has plans to open an entire feeder pattern. So six more schools and hopefully bringing in more partners from across the country to help take over some of these um, uh, failing schools. So it's a it's a great partnership between the district um, and the community and these external providers, um, and I think it has tremendous promise for the future. Well, it's
0: trying to cut through the uh, usual conflicts that are out there in education, and it sounds like, once again, you're on the cutting edge of reform. Thank you very much, uh, Michelle. I have been talking with Michelle Ree, former chancellor of the Washington, D.C., school system. This is Paul Peterson on the Education Exchange. Please join me. Every Monday, we release a new podcast.
1: Thank you.